Hello and welcome to The Zip Files, a weekly technology news catch-up show. This week, I'll ram 10 bits of red-hot tech news into your eardrums. Keep your headphones in for such scoops as Tesla laying off 9% of its staff, Uber knowing when we are drunk, Apple locking down iPhones, and much, much more. In the middle of all that, we have a long story on WeWork, the co-working space startup worth tens of billions of dollars. I'll tell you all about how they started, where they are now, and if they're headed for a fiery grave. Of course, I'm just one guy with a mic, and that's pretty boring. So I've got my friend Alex on this week. Hi, my name is Alex. I have blonde hair and I really hate ice cream. You hear that? She hates happiness. Sorry, I mean ice cream. Stick around for more shocking insights. Anyway, without further ado, let's get all caught up with This Week in Tech. So you've had a few too many sangrias, and the 10-minute walk to the train station seems inhumanely far. You pull out your smartphone and hail an Uber, only this time you're blocked. Uber knows that you've overindulged, and guess what? Uber doesn't really like us when we're drunk. This cautionary tale could soon be a reality, as Uber filed a patent last week that describes an artificial intelligence-based technology that can determine when a user is drunk. How does it do this? Well, according to the patent, the AI analyzes how you interact with the app and how you are walking. If you are stumbling and raucously misclicking, then Uber will know that your grape juice has some wine in it. This could be awesome for rider and driver safety. After all, alcohol makes people do bad stuff sometimes, but could also rouse the anger of privacy advocates. It was leaked and then confirmed on Tuesday that Tesla will lay off 9% of its employees starting immediately. The electric car company has been going through massive upheaval in 2018 as it tries to move towards a profitable second half of the year. Musk tweeted out the internal email announcing the layoffs with the caption, Difficult but necessary Tesla reorg underway. The email says that those on the chopping block are not production line workers, but salaried employees whose criticality to success is no longer high enough to justify employment. To stay the fears of an already anxious market, Musk bought $25 million of Tesla stock across Tuesday and Wednesday in a strategic move to demonstrate his belief in the company's long-term viability. If you could come back to life as an animal, what animal would you be and why? Um, Okay, I would be... I think I'd quite like to be a toad or a frog. Oh. That was not what I was expecting. Why do you want to be a toad or a frog? <laughs> I just think they have a really nice, chill life. Oh, yeah? You no, know, just be in a pond, having a nice time. Yeah. Um, I don't know. You want to live I think in a that pond? Of nice. <laughs> <laughs> all the places. <laughs> what? So what, what do you imagine your life as a toad or a frog to be? What would be a daily schedule for you as Alexandra the toad? <laughs> You'd get up, have a little hop around, a little swim. Yeah. A little sunbathe. Yeah. Have some food. Hop around a bit more. And then go to sleep. <laughs> I think you've just described my life, Alexandra. <laughs> <laughs> I think I might be a toad. Ah, oh, butterfly would be quite nice as well. But then they die really, you know, they don't live very long. I don't think frogs live for that long. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to break it to you, Alex. 
Some of the most exciting applications of wearables are in the medical space. Although the tech is still in a relatively nascent stage in comparison to the imagined possibilities of our future, it is already having a significant impact on lives. Apple announced at WWDC a week ago that the Apple Watch will be getting an upgrade to its Movement Disorder API, which will help to track the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. Later this year, a software update will allow the watch to track tremors experienced by sufferers of Parkinson's, which could help them to better manage when to take medication. The data will also be available to medical researchers and could lead to early detection of the disease. Now that is good tech. Human beings aren't the nicest creatures on the block. We've known that for a while. But our interactions with robots just go to reaffirm this unfortunate truth. The amazingly named Starship Technologies, who were launched in 2014 and make food delivery robots, has revealed that us humans have a penchant for kicking. Not just footballs, it turns out, but in this case the 22-inch tall robots that quietly buzz along pavements, delivering food to people. This might be an insight into how we will treat our robotic companions of the future, but let's hope we learn some manners. It was E3 this week, the annual video game paradise, during which hardware manufacturers, software developers and publishers present new and soon-to-be-released products. Microsoft announced they are working on a streaming service that will allow you to play Xbox remotely via your mobile or some other such device. No specific dates were given for a release, but Microsoft's gaming chief has previously teased that the feature will be available within three years. That's a pretty long-term tease. In other Microsoft news, they are apparently deep into the development process of the new Xbox. When that will be released, though, is sort of anyone's guess. Industry insiders are saying 2020. Uh, anyway, let's wait. Welcome to this week's Long Listen. The idea that people might actually enjoy the space in which they work is a relatively new one. From industrial London to 1980s Manhattan, workers have found themselves placed in drab and uninspiring surroundings, a hangover from the factory era when employees were stuck in uniform rows along assembly lines. When blue collars were swapped for white ones, architects didn't really know what to do except imitate the factory floor. Bosses would sit in their walled offices to the sides and workers would be collected along lines of cellular desks down the centre, cognizant occasionally, but positioned as if never. For many offices, this remains the norm, but an increasing number of executives and humans are realising that work can be done in pleasant surroundings. They need not be Spartan, devoid of imagination, a bored tapestry of grey. Cue the stratospheric rise of WeWork, an office rental company that thinks itself much more. To quote its founder, Adam Newman, WeWork isn't really a real estate company. It's a state of consciousness, a generation of interconnected, emotionally intelligent entrepreneurs. Now that is a bold statement, something you might expect to hear from John. John, who is generally a good guy, but takes far too much LSD on weekdays and follows fringe religions on Reddit. However, Adam Newman is, to my knowledge, a stable, non-LSD, non-fringe religion kind of guy, so his zealous belief in WeWork, coupled with its rocket fueled jet-propelled climb to a valuation in the tens of billions of dollars, 
means that we have to take his ethereal vision seriously. Or do we? Is WeWork's $4 billion of funding and 20 times revenue valuation indicative of a bubble or based on sane, sober calculations? Let's break it down. But first, like any good story or bad story come to think of it, it all began somewhere, sometime. Adam Newman and Miguel McKelvey worked in the same building back in 2008, a building that wasn't quite full. At the time, Miguel was plying his craft as an architect and Adam was an embattled entrepreneur. His newest venture focused on protecting the knees of babies. The company, called Crawlers with a K, hawked baby grows with knee pads, an innovation that the world simply wasn't ready for and perhaps never will be. Anyway, I was saying, the office that the two found themselves in wasn't quite full. Adam approached the landlord proposing that he lease them a floor and that they run a co-working space. No, the landlord said. Adam persisted, persisted for a long while, ignored the numerous no's, and was eventually granted a no, but you can give it a go in this warehouse. Newman and McKelvey fell in love with the space. It was perfect for the cool, young, millennial vision that they had. What was their plan, the landlord asked. They hadn't really thought about that. So McKelvey went away and spent the night building a website, incorporating the company, creating promotional materials and drawing up crude floor plans. The feigned preparedness convinced the landlord and Green Desk, their environmentally conscious Brooklyn warehouse-based co-working, was go. Three months later, its doors opened and a mere month hence, the business was profitable. They quickly filled all five floors with 70-ish people on each. McKelvey and Newman realised that co-working had fantastic potential and wondered about expanding. The landlord wanted to grow into his other properties. The pair wanted the freedom to go where best. It was immediately clear that the partnership had run its course and the founders sold Green Desk to the landlord for a fee, which no one seems to remember, but was at least a million and a bit. Noting that it was not really the environmental aspect of Green Desk that had made it so successful, but rather the community that it created and offered, Adam and Miguel founded WeWork in 2010. Co-working for the modern, want-a-nice-life-to-be-part-of-a-community, millennial. Indeed, co-working wasn't the innovation, nor was the way that WeWork or Greendesk made money, actually known as rental arbitration. Put simply, because it's not particularly complicated, Miguel and Adam would rent an office space for X amount of dollars, spruce it up a bit, market it, and sublet it for cumulatively more than X dollars. But yes, that had been going on for ages and wasn't innovative. The innovation was the brand and the community atmosphere that WeWork created. Nowadays, WeWork has over 200,000 members in 295 locations worldwide, and this is only set to grow, with the company adding 500,000 to 1 million square foot of new space every month. Once a location has been identified, WeWork are able to turn it around and get the first punters in the door within just four months, an operational efficiency that is pretty much unparalleled amongst its competitors. How does it grow so fast and maintain a high quality across its locations? Technology. WeWork leverages data on neighbourhoods to decide where is best for its future offices. In partnership with Factual, a location data provider, WeWork comes up with a rating for an area based on various important factors, such as proximity to amenities, transport links and restaurants. Once it has found the optimal location, it will sign the lease and bring in tech to scan the inside of the building and produce a 3D model 
that can be used to better understand the time and cost of the project. This process takes just one hour per floor and lets the physical products team accurately map the space. WeWork squeezes in members with an average of just 50 square foot per person, and so maximizing the space is essential to business success. Once they have the 3D model, WeWork try to optimize the number of co-working spaces, meeting rooms, and communal areas, whilst ensuring natural light abounds. But even these decisions are increasingly the utterances of a computer system. WeWork has harnessed machine learning to create its own neural net that scrapes through all of the information held on layouts and usage of existing locations in the WeWork ecosystem. From this data, it learns and offers suggestions for the optimal number of meeting rooms and other such facilities in yet-to-be-renovated offices. All of this is very impressive, but does it justify such an astronomical valuation? To put it in perspective, all we need to do is look over at IWG, one of WeWork's largest competitors. Whilst WeWork's valuation is somewhere in excess of $20 billion, with rumours that a new round of investment led by SoftBank could double that valuation to $40 billion in the very near future, IWG's valuation is just $2.2 billion, despite having over 10 times as many locations. Why then is WeWork valued like a tech startup, whilst IWG is confined to the valuations of a real estate business? The simple answer is growth. Last year, New York-headquartered WeWork generated around $900 million in revenue. This year, it is expected to generate $2.3 billion of revenue. In contrast, IWG's revenue is actually falling. However, even this phenomenal growth isn't enough to convince a host of skeptics who look at WeWork as riding a dangerous growth bubble. The argument goes that WeWork's main customers are entrepreneurs and freelancers, if there is suddenly an economic downturn, then this is the first section of the workforce who will pack up and leg it to cheaper digs, thus leaving WeWork to pay billions of dollars in rent on properties that aren't WeWorking for them. Pun very much intended. Those who see the sunnier side of things argue that WeWork's clients are now 30% enterprise, the likes of IBM, Microsoft, JP Morgan Chase. And anyway, the co-working business is nicely buoyant during a downturn, according to historical data. In 2008, Greendesk and IWG actually performed well as the working world became displaced and looked to more flexible, unconventional workspace arrangements. On top of this, WeWork are shedding lease risk by buying up properties and entering into co-management deals with landlords that don't expose WeWork so full frontally in the eventuality of decreased demand. In reality, the picture is mixed WeWork has proven that it can quickly expand its scale whilst creating spatially efficient offices in a whole host of challenging locations. In order to assure its long-term viability and create a business resistant to financial downturn, WeWork will need to concentrate on growing its enterprise business whilst reducing its accounting risk by entering into more co-management agreements and purchasing its own buildings. If Miguel, Adam and their 3,000-person-plus team can do this, then WeWork has every chance of concretely justifying its sky-high valuation, we hope.
what was the last <laughs> dream that you had that you remember? Oh, I can't remember my last. I can tell you about a very strange recurring dream I had as a kid. Yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> so I used to regularly dream that my mum would drop me off at nursery mm. and I would go in and it would all be fine. And then <laughs> the teacher would chop off my hands and attach what? rubber gloves. <laughs> you know, like um, the ones you wash up with. Yeah. Like yeah, like pink ones. Yeah, pink oh, marigolds. Pink marigolds. And then I would go home. <laughs> what? <Yeah. laughs> Boy, you'd just be so nonchalant about not having hands. And you'd be like... Yeah, I think I was sad. Definitely sad yeah. about the fact that I had marigold hands. Adyen, Dutch fintech company and PayPal rival, went public on Tuesday to much aplomb. The share price rocketed up 90% from the start of the day, finishing at €455 and giving the company a valuation of €13.4 billion. So who are Adyen? Well, they're a big deal, a payments processing firm founded in 2006 that works with giants like Netflix, Facebook, Spotify and now eBay. The 12-year-old company broke the $1 billion revenue mark for the first time in 2017 and is on the way, way up. On Tuesday, federal judge Richard Leon approved the $85 million merger between wireless carrier AT&T and media company Time Warner. The Department of Justice was suing to stop the acquisition, arguing that it went against antitrust law and would harm the American consumer. Following the trial's conclusion, the DOJ now has 60 days to appeal the decision. But based on the judge's damning statements around the government's arguments, calling one, quote, gossamer thin and another, quote, poppycock, it doesn't seem likely that the DOJ will have any success in an appellate court. This ruling has major implications for the future of the media space, opening the path for massive consolidation as companies merge to fight the rising tide of Netflix and Amazon. Indeed, the industry was quick to react, with Comcast putting in a bid of $65 billion for 21st Century Fox on Wednesday. China Labour Watch spent nine months to thoroughly investigate conditions of a Foxconn-owned factory that manufactures Amazon products in Hengyang, China. They found that the factory were severely flouting labour laws by forcing employees to work more than 100 hours overtime per month during peak season almost three times the legal cap. The safety conditions were also found to be below standard with the workers' accommodation lacking emergency exits or fire extinguishers. Many workers were also required to work 14 days without a day off. For all of this, the employees are compensated at a rate of $2.26 per hour. Amazon has the ability to more strictly control and monitor its suppliers. This is frankly unacceptable. If you had to become an inanimate object for a year, what object would you choose to be? <laughs> um, okay. I'm trying to think what goes to a lot of places. Ah. I would be, but not too many places. I don't, <laughs> as in, like, you could be a phone, but then I don't want someone taking me to the bathroom. <laughs> true, <laughs> true. Um, I would be, you know, the windscreen. On a plane? Yes. <laughs> that would be terrifying, surely. <laughs> Why would it be terrifying? Do you like heights? No, but, you, but you'd be fine and as, as the windscreen. Do you like flying? No, I hate flying, but I feel like if you were part of the plane, 
you would be okay. You cannot put this on a line, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Amazon has long since used robots in its warehouses to shift goods around, but now machines are coming for the jobs of Amazon's white-collar glitterati, the buyers who have commanded six-figure salaries and made essential decisions around what to stock, how much to stock, and at what price are being replaced by AI. Quickly, grab your bucket and put a spoon in your mouth. But no, this isn't really a surprise. When you remember that Amazon is the biggest cloud services provider in the world and has built out a huge artificial intelligence platform. My guess is that there has been a whole host of automation in the buying process for years, and the employees have seen this one coming since Terminator blasted onto our screens in 1985. In a move that is frustrating law enforcement, Apple is further locking down its iPhones by introducing a USB-restricted mode. Historically, the easiest way to break into a locked iPhone has been through its charging port. That is set to change with Apple's new restricted mode causing the phone's lightning port to change from a data and charging port to a charging only one after an hour of being locked. From Apple's perspective, the port vulnerability had become more than just a tool for law enforcement, but a serious flaw that was allowing malicious actors to hack devices. Some disagree. Baton Rouge LA District Attorney Hilar Moore condemned Apple's decision. They are blatantly protecting criminal activity and only under the guise of privacy for their clients. And it's done. It's over. You can open your eyes now. Take it all in. Hopefully the tech world around you makes a bit more sense. You're all caught up. If you enjoyed the show, then please share the zip files with a friend. If you hated it, then please share it with an enemy. Also, sorry to be hashtag that guy, but if you're feeling bright and breezy, happy and friendly, then rating the zip files five stars on Apple Podcasts would help me out massively. I love you all. Until next Sunday, enjoy your oat milk lattes and have a great week. Hold up. 